Well, good to have everyone here today. Let's take our Bibles and let's open them to the book of Matthew 13, please. Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. You'll find that on that book rack Bible there in front of you on page 1519. Maybe you have a tablet, smartphone, anywhere you can put your eyes on Scripture. Get there now, Matthew 13. There's a sermon outline in your bulletin. Maybe it'll help you track along as we move through this beautiful passage this morning. Today we come to another transition in our study in the book of Matthew. We've been saying this, but I'm going to say it again, that the book of Matthew uh, toggles between narrative and uh, teaching sections, and uh, we're entering into the fourth narrative section of this book, and it's going to take us all the way into chapter 17. So we're going to be here for a few weeks, and uh, it's going to set up for us the overall theme of this narrative in the Gospel of Matthew as in the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's the prominent theme of this whole section that we're about to be into, and uh, we'll see that actually in the text this morning. Uh, but what a timely, actual timely text in the sense that today is uh, the third Sunday of Lent. We are moving quickly toward the passion of Christ and the glorious resurrection of Christ, and so this is a very timely section of Scripture to be going into as we think about people who have turned their backs on Christ and yet His great love for us. And this is a very relevant passage for us today. It, it speaks of the many people who sit in churches across our country and around the world who acquaint, are acquainted with the life and teachings of Christ but seem to lack the kind of transformation that He taught. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. It sort of speaks to the issue of the fact that there can be people so familiar with Jesus and yet so... So often those people so familiar with him are least impacted by his life. This text is going to show us that this morning. Let's look at it beginning in verse 53, chapter 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did, he, where, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there, because of their lack of faith. All right, well, that's an interesting little text. And like I said, it sort of speaks to the fact that we can be familiar with Christ and not be impacted by his life. And so the question before us this morning is, is that any of us? And perhaps the answer would be that yes, at, in times in our lives, even as followers of Christ, we can become, we can lean on the familiar side. But this morning to unpack this passage, I want us to look at three what I would call headlines over what we're going to look at this morning. And the first headline is the beauty of grace. Say that with me, the beauty of grace. And then we're going to look at the danger of familiarity. Say that, the danger of familiarity. And lastly, we're going to look at the impact of unbelief. Say that with me, the impact of unbelief. All right, so the beauty of grace, the beauty of grace the danger of familiarity, and the impact of unbelief. So under this beauty of grace, what are we talking about here? Verses 53 and 54 of this text, I believe, teaches us that even those 
even those who have pushed Jesus away in their past are often given more opportunities to know him. What a beautiful thing that is. That's where I see the beauty of grace. Uh, Now, in the context here, the context shows us something rather interesting. Verse 53 and 54 shows us that Jesus visits again. Jesus again visits Nazareth and teaches in its synagogue. Now, when we read in verse 54 that coming to his hometown, he began teaching, we stop right there because if you're a student of the Gospels, you know that this isn't the first time Jesus came back to his hometown. The first time Jesus comes back to his hometown and actually begins his public ministry, he didn't have such a great experience. And maybe you remember that. You can turn quickly if you want to the book of Luke chapter 4 if you want to get a little bit of background here and why I think this is important, why we see the beauty of grace here. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into his hometown. He's teaching in the synagogue, verse 16. And uh, he stands up in the synagogue. A scroll is handed to him and he reads from Isaiah The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of the sight to the blind, release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, put it back in the attendant's hand, sat down, and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it says that all spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then the question starts arising, isn't this Joseph's son? And once again, the same situation takes place where they start considering the familiarity of Christ. This is a kid that grew up in our village. We saw him grow up and and on and on. And then it says in the text that they actually took, they were furious with him, verse 28, and they led him out outside the city onto the brow of a hill where the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. I don't call that a very warm welcome, do you? I mean, that thing turned sour just like that. I mean, here's Jesus coming in. He proclaims the fact that he's Messiah, that the Scripture's been fulfilled in their hearing, and they want to kill him. So this is why I see the beauty of grace and what we see here in Matthew 13, because once again, Jesus comes back to the city that was ready to throw him off the, off the hill. How do you feel when you've got a bad experience? Do you feel good about going back to situations that were bad experiences for you? You know, there's a lot of people that aren't here today because when they came to this church, whenever, they didn't have a good experience. Now, I hope that most people do have a good experience when they come, and we ought to pray for that every Sunday. I hope that's part of your prayer. Lord, let guests have a good time today. Let them experience your presence. Let there be joy. Let there be a positive. But sometimes people have bad experiences, and sometimes it happens in the parking lot, you know, when they're leaving, someone cuts them off. You know, we, I've, I've heard every story in the book of what happens up on this property on a Sunday morning. And there's some crazy things that happen. And I think, oh, Lord, how could, this, how could this have happened in this place? And the Lord reminds me, because there's people here, this things, these things happen. And if you're a guest here today, let me just remind you, not everybody here is a follower of Jesus. <laughs> So if you have a a weird situation today, it might have been that you encountered somebody that that doesn't love God at all or doesn't doesn't even like God at all. And I don't know necessarily what would have brought them here, but there's people here perhaps like that. Uh, and, And let me just also be brutally honest. Some of us that are Christ followers sometimes act really weird and sinful. And so sometimes, as, a, as a, you may just have visited recently, some people are not here because they had a bad experience. If you have a bad experience, you say, I'm going to stay away. But aren't you glad that Jesus was not like that? 
Aren't you glad that the people that rejected him, he actually came back to again? I see this as the God of the second chance and the third chance. He comes again and again and again. He's patient. He's willing to come to us again. Don't think you can exhaust the patience of God just because you've refused him before. He's coming back. This is a picture of God's irresistible grace. 19th century poet named Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Have you heard it? It's a long poem. It's about 180 stanzas. It's a little long to read right here. But it starts off this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. That's, that poet, poem goes on to recount the realities of in the midst of our running, God continues to come after us. A description of the poem, one that I read in sort of looking at the thesis of the poem, said this, as the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and imperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure, forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. It's a beautiful reminder to us that the God that we serve is, is like this great hound of heaven. It just keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. In all the times that we have spurned his love and turned away from him, he's still willing to come back. His heart still leans toward, still invites, still shows graciousness. Even for those of us who follow Jesus in our sin, the beautiful picture of grace is that even in our deepest, darkest most rebellious moment as a follower of Jesus, his grace is still there. Can we ever go too deep that we don't find the grace of God? His grace is sufficient for us. And of course, Romans 6 tells us, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. And so we come this morning to a God that is gracious and loving. He's the God of the second and the third and the 50th and the 100th chance. And for some of us today, they're resisting him. You've pushed him away so many times in your life. And family members have encouraged you. And by God's grace, they invited you. And you're here today and you're listening to this. What a precious gift that God is once again saying by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ that though you have rejected me, though you have turned away from me, I'm still there. I'm still coming to you. I am the great hound of heaven. I said at the top of this section that it actually produces, uh, introduces us to this rejection motif in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and I was thinking about this when I was thinking of Psalm 118.22. We'll put it on the screen. Psalm 118.22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Or Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Yes, though he was rejected, he comes again and again and again, and he's coming to you and to me today. Don't turn him away. Think of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
as in the day of the desert in Meribah when they hardened their hearts against the Lord and God said, I will not let that generation enter into the promised land. This is the beauty of grace. This is the reminder to us that today is the day of salvation, that it is not too late. If you're still listening today, God's invitation is open to you. I love the 2 Corinthians 6 uh, verses 1 and 2 where it says, As God's fellow workers, Paul writes, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And that word today found in Hebrews 4.17, as I mentioned a minute ago in in, uh, Psalm 95, uh, do not harden your hearts today, today, today. There's a beautiful picture in the the whole Bible and, and specifically in the New Testament of what the word today means. It means that there's still grace, that God is still opening his arms, that he's still inviting us to come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. And so this is a message for the prodigals. This is a message for people that have rejected God and rejected Jesus and started their own way of life. God is still the great hound of heaven. But it's also a message for believers in Christ to stop pushing away from the gentle nudgings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the beauty of grace. We come to the second movement of this, not just the beauty of grace, but the danger of familiarity. Verses 54 through 57 teaches us that there are some whose exposure to Jesus blinds them from seeing who he really is. This is the danger of familiarity. When your exposure to Jesus actually blinds you from seeing who he really is. Now the people of Nazareth, if you want to look at this in the historical text, or context, the people of Nazareth were offended at Jesus because they thought they knew him well enough to conclude he wasn't their Messiah. They thought they knew Jesus. In fact, in my Bible, look at your Bibles and just see how this reads to you. In verses 54, uh, it says, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Um, It says they were amazed, and then they say, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? This sounds like something of awe. This sounds like something of of, uh, veneration and honor. But no, actually in in the Greek text, this is a contemptuous statement. This is a statement of saying, who do you think you are? This is like, you, 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 we know who you are. In fact, if we just want to read a little bit into this, Verse 54, uh, what does it say? It says that they were, uh, that he had been teaching in the synagogue, but where did you get this wisdom and these miraculous power? You haven't been educated, Jesus. His education wasn't uh, accredited. He had not sat in any notable rabbi or before any notable rabbi of his day. He didn't attend rabbinical schools of his day. This was a commoner who stands up and has the audacity as a Jewish man teaching in the synagogue without proper credentials. Who do you think you are? I, I'm thinking of Aretha Franklin, you know, Mr. Big Shot. You know, who do you, who do you think you are? This is the tone. Sorry, I don't, my mind works weird sometimes. But this is the tone. This, they're saying like, you come walking in here with your teaching, but you can't explain your credential to us. We've seen you raised in this town. Not only that, 
your power, the source of your power is suspect. Where did it come from? Now, they didn't deny his power. Did you notice that? They just deny or they just uh, question the source of the power. You remember back in chapter 12, 22, they ascribed his power to Satan himself. I mean, they, did, they weren't denying his power. They were just saying, where does it come from? Thirdly, he's the son of a carpenter. Now, remember his father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And it's likely that Joseph died because there's nowhere in the Gospels that we read about Joseph doing anything. So it's likely that as a young boy, uh, Joseph died. Mary would have become a widow at some point in Jesus' childhood. And Jesus likely took over his father's business. And he was a carpenter in this village. Can you think about Jesus coming to your home to do a remodel? <laughs> it would have been perfect. You know, now I, I, I look at guys in the trades because I have no skill in this area, but people in the trades just amaze me. They, you know, they can come in, they can figure something out. When I break stuff, I don't know how to fix it, you know, but they break stuff and they know how to fix it. They know how to make it right. This is a beautiful thing about the trades. But typically, even in our culture, we kind of look at people of the trades as, you know, if you kind of compare them to botanists or scientists or, you know, physicists or something, we think mathematicians, we, we think, no, but, but that's just in our culture. I think it was the same in Jesus' culture. Uh, this would have been a blue-collar worker with no special status or notoriety, and you're telling me you can teach me something about God? You're just... One of us. In fact, that's what they go on to say. Your mother Mary is one of us, verse 55. It's interesting that here the insinuation of the people is that Mary herself was simply one of them, as was his brothers and sisters. And notice they name the brothers. The sisters aren't named there, but they say, they, hey, we, we saw you raised. In fact, John 7, verse 5 gives us a little clue into this that John writes, he says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. It wasn't until the resurrection that some of Jesus' family came around. Can you imagine during this time, his own family were not even believers, or at least most of them were not. And so the, the people of the town are saying, Jesus, look, you, you don't have an education. Your power is suspect. You're the son of a carpenter. Mary, your mother, is one of us. Your brothers and sisters are just like us. We're suspicious just like they are. On a spiritual, professional, and domestic level, Jesus had no outstanding qualities that in their mind would set him apart. They just saw him as normal, everyday Joe. And so Jesus now, in his ministry, in the things that he's doing, they can't separate the fact that this Jesus, the one who grew up in their village and went around tinkering in their homes and building you know, maybe furniture or doing some things in their homes as a carpenter in their village, was now the, the proclaimed, and he was then too, but it hadn't become public yet, he was the proclaimed Messiah. And they just couldn't put those th two things together. You know, we do this a little bit too. I'm going to just go a little off track for just a moment, but, you know, some of us around here, we've got pastors on our staff in this church who some of you remember when they were in diapers. <laughs> you know, I think of like James Tyler, you know, uh, he's pastor of junior high. Austin Foxworthy, one of our children's pastors. Ryan Suzuki, you know, one of our uh, children's pastors, also our college pastor. Danny Strange, I mean, he, he came to Christ as a high schooler here in our ministry. And so some of us have the, the here's what happens. You know, you, see, you remember, oh, I remember you in the nursery when you, you know, spoiled your diaper, you know. <laughs> and now you're leading our kids or you're leading this branch of ministry or you're preaching in front of us. Why should we listen to you? You know, we, you're just a kid. 
Now sometimes, I know most of us, this is, we have a very gracious church, but I know sometimes it feels that way to people that have been around. There's just sort of a, a house blindness to people who, who are around a lot. I remember when I was in uh, uh, early ministry, First Baptist Church of San Mateo, as a third grader, I came to know Christ, and I grew up through the ranks of that church. I started there when I was probably in kindergarten or so, and uh, so the same situation, became a, a student ministries pastor there, actually worked as an intern, a campus director. I was never really like the, the youth pastor there, but I remember doing leadership things, and I remember some of the adults just sort of like brushing me and my, my peer group off because they knew us from being children. And it just was always this, you know, I can remember going to people's houses. They wanted me to come over for dinner. Oh, we'd love to have you over for dinner. You're one of our, you know, kids ministers, so we'd like to get to know you. And then they would sit me down and they would grill me about the way the ministry is going, how it needs to be this way and that way. I thought, you didn't ask me for dinner to get to know me. You asked me for dinner so you could gripe on me kind of thing. And, and it, felt, it, felt, it felt ugly to me. And I think we do this. We do this with people that we think we've got some kind of you know, thumb. Now, I, I'm not, you know, believe me, I look back, they should have griped on me for some things. I mean, I, there's, there's things, I'm, I'm not saying it's not right to bring concerns, but sometimes you feel as a younger pastor growing into a ministry, you feel like people just sort of like, yeah, yeah, but you're just a kid, you know, kind of thing. And just, can I just throw an exhortation out here, and I'm not thinking of any story in mind, it's a beautiful Sunday to do this, can we just remember our younger pastors, yes, they're young, but they have a calling of God on their hearts, and they're doing the work of, script, of scripture learning and, and education, and they're pouring it out, and, and they have a lot to teach us. And every time they stand before us, whether they're in junior high or into a main service or a Good Friday service or out under the crosses, wherever they are, it's a beautiful thing. In their sphere, in their ministry, we should be leaning in and saying, God, teach me through those people. We should have a teachable spirit all the time and just encourage you with those thoughts. But beware. Now, let's, go, let's come back into this. That was a little side point. But it's, it's actually a good point in the, in the text because this is what they were doing with Jesus. Jesus was about 32 years old right now. So as a 32-year-old, I'm sure there were people going, you know, this guy's barely, you know, broken into adulthood. And so they were, they were kind of chipping away. And so they saw Jesus, they were familiar with Jesus, but they couldn't really see who he really was. Now, beware of seasons in your life when, when you have chosen to keep Jesus at a distance simply because you are familiar enough with him. Now, now, who might be at risk, all right? You're listening today. Who might be at risk? Here's some folks that might be at risk. Kids that are raised in Christian homes might be at risk. Uh, kids that have gone to or are going to Christian schools could be at risk. Uh, kids that are thoroughly involved in Christian ministry or your past has brought you through many levels of Christian growth in your life, but it's been mostly doing and not getting to know this Jesus. There's a lot of us that could be at risk this morning. You could be so familiar with Jesus, but watch this, and write this down maybe in your notes. I've written it down in my notes. You can be familiar with Jesus and not be in the family with Jesus. Familiar or family? Family. 
Oh yeah, you can quote the verses, you can talk the talk. There are some of us here today that are so good at knowing the Christian culture. We can say the things that sound right. We can, we can do the things that look right. But we're really not surrendered to Jesus. We're going through motions. We're religious people. We have what we think are good hearts. But we might be the very people of Matthew 13 that are folding their arms and pushing back when Jesus comes with a statement of lordship or where he needs to take ownership over something in our lives, we, we push him back. These can be Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterian, or any denomination under this, or any sect under Christendom, where we have become familiar with the life and teachings of Jesus, but we are not family with Jesus. How do you become family? You ask Jesus to be your Lord. You confess as a sinner you need him. The life of griping and complaining and pushing back goes away for your life becomes one of saying, Jesus, how do I live this life? Some of us are lost in knowing enough but never really knowing him. Many people in churches, even like ours, and some of us, even this morning, I'm convinced I've been praying all week, Lord, would you just put your hand on the person that might be sitting here today that's highly religious, highly faithful, knows the language, wears the the clothing of Christianity, so to speak, and this is not, I'm not trying to berate anyone here this morning, but beloved, it's, is We'll see in a minute why I, I, it's a fair assumption that there are some of us today that are more religious than, they are, than we are in relationship with the living God. We go along with Jesus, but we don't go with Jesus. And thus, we are offended when he comes to us again and again and again through a friend, through a word of scripture, through someone's story, or even a sermon like this. We're feeling a little perturbed right now in our spirit. I wish that guy would just shut up, you know, just. Because, because there's something going on in your heart. There's a struggle going on. Think of Matthew 7. We've gone over this so many times and we just taught it in the series a few months back. Matthew 7, many will say to me, Jesus said, on that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. That's familiar without family. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. And so, back to Matthew 13, 57. They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. This is interesting. Jesus quotes what the Romans and Greeks often used in everyday circumstance. This was a popular saying of the day. Only in his own Only among his own people is a prophet without honor. And by using this quotation, it could be argued that Jesus is naming himself a prophet, and he's also implying that they have summarily rejected him by not recognizing who he is. You remember when Peter preached at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2? He said, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Big mistake. 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age, Paul wrote, understood it, for if had they, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. I think about all the people that are turning away from Jesus, thinking that they just know him enough, and how could they ever put their faith and trust in a guy like Jesus? 
and yet he is who he says he is. I see this, the beauty of grace, the danger of familiarity. And by the way, just on this idea of familiarity, um, you know, I hope, I hope that none of us come to church, and this, this is, again, a timely moment, that when we come on Sundays to worship together as God's people, that our antenna is, antennas are so raised up, recognizing that we should not take any of what we see going on around here for granted. We should not come in with the same old, same old mentality. Do you? I do sometimes. And it's just, oh, there's that person. Oh, I see them all the time. Oh, they sit there. If you look around, I sit up. I'm, you see me every week right here, most every week. Well, I see you too where you are too. And everybody kind of sits in the same spot. And sometimes we get a little perturbed. Hey, you're sitting in my spot, you know. I mean, come on. And we walk through the lobby, we walk through the Connection Center, and oh, we see that person. Listen, every time we gather is a precious gift. And we ought to go out of our way to encourage people. Thank you for what you're doing today. Thanks for helping us go get along today. Thanks for what, just if you notice somebody, just encourage them. It should be a party. It should be a celebration. And when we meet a guest, they shouldn't get out of here without literally being mobbed. Well, Maybe not mob, but (laughs) now I just made all the guests feel really uncomfortable. No, you shouldn't get out of here without feeling so much love and so much acceptance, and so we're so glad you're here. It's a party. And watch this. When you come back, it's not same old, same old. It's another party. And when we haven't seen people for a while, it shouldn't be, where have you been? It should be, it's so great to see you again. It's amazing how many people have, have missed out and we just, we just are kind of away from all this reality that this is a special, that this is a gift. What we have today is a gift. What we have with each other is a gift. This facility is a gift. The partnerships we have in this community is a gift. The churches that we support in this community that we work together with are gifts. God's people are gifts. The Spirit of God gives us spiritual gifts. We are gifted people. We have gifts all around us. And we should be so grateful and so thankful and so anticipating whenever we gather that something special is going to go on because Jesus, the King of glory, is among us. And if we come in with the same old, same old attitude and it's just church again, I've sung these songs before and on and on it goes, we will miss out on the blessing We will miss out on the blessing. Okay, my watch is telling me it's time to wrap up. All right, let's look at this one last thing. The beauty of grace, the danger of familiarity, and lastly, the impact of unbelief. Now, in verse 58, this is just one little verse here, but I learned from this verse that the probability of spiritual transformation decreases wherever unbelief takes root. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, it's simple. I mean, there were not many miracles done in Nazareth because of the people's unbelief. That's what it says in verse 58. The bottom line is that there's not a whole lot happens spiritually in places where people hold Jesus in contempt because they're just so familiar with him. Is it any wonder why our society is lacking spiritual transformation? Even though there are churches sprinkled throughout every community in our state and throughout the country and in fact many places around the world. Or that the largest Christian denominations are in decline. Or why churches, even churches like ours, sometimes lack the spiritual fervor and joy that impacts and transforms. Has our familiarity with Jesus blocked the receptivity needed 
for his spirit to break out and to break loose in our community? Are we holding back the Spirit of God because we're content with our superficial awareness of Jesus than pressing on to know Him passionately and personally and to follow hard after Him? It's a good question. I read a book recently. Someone gave me conversations that the church ought to be having. In this book, he cites Barna's research showing that millennials today, you know, the millennial generation Uh, have left the church. We see it here. The statistic, 40% of people that that look like they're on fire in high school go off to college, and 40 to 50% will trump their faith in the next couple of years of their life. The church around the globe, and specifically in the West, is recognizing that You know, having all the cool things and all the great things of ministry doesn't necessarily attract and keep young people. What attracts and keeps young people in ministry is when they see true, passionate, legitimate, non-hypocritical lives who are on fire for Jesus, where there's intergenerational connection and relationship so that they see that when they get to be that age, they can have a true relationship with Jesus too. And, and yet, there's so often times people are just kind of leaking out the doors. They come back, sometimes the millennials come back into church looking for Jesus, looking for God, that they've sort of wondered if he really exists, and the reality is they go right back out because they haven't found the God that we say we serve. Now, that can be an indictment on just the reality of their souls, but it can also be an indictment on a ministry or a church that is just too plain familiar with Jesus and too comfortable playing church. And so I just, you know, uh, this is honest talk from the Word of God this morning. I don't want to be a a Nazareth, do you? I don't want to be a church that was a, can you remember how great it was 20 years ago? Oh, man, we had all this stuff. Or 10 years ago, or 5 years ago. I mean, if God did stuff 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, great. Praise God He did that stuff. But I'm looking more forward to the things He's going to do next year or today. And I, and I hope you are too. And I, I, I believe that, you know, that, that uh, faint response right there did something to somebody here. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we, we can have that response. And we just, and you know, I'm, I'm being silly with you. But I think in all of our hearts we're saying, yes, Jesus, explode in this place. And you can't do that without saying, Jesus, do it in my heart. Take the callousness, the hardness, the the smugness out of my life so that I can come away with you. And that's what Jesus is saying. He came to this little town and he was basically saying, come away with me. I'll show you I can do more than you can imagine if you surrender your life to me. But if you fold your arms in disbelief or in smug familiarity, my work won't happen here. So let's pray for that end, shall we? You know, last week we had an amazing prayer meeting. Thank you for those of you that came. Beautiful time of just calling out for God to help us. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Lord, don't let this be same old, same old. We got a younger generation that's coming up. Younger generation pastors coming up. Someday we're all moving off the scene. Who's going to be sitting in these seats? But praise God for a church who I believe and will continue to say, Jesus, do your work here. 
rend our hearts, not our garments, that we can know you more. Let's go to the Lord.